Hello, ladies and gentlemen. How are we? Can I just uh, confirm that everyone has access to the uh, to the web? Uh, sorry, the the workbook that Fred has kindly uploaded as part of this webinar. You should see a link in your chat window right now. Nelson, are you raising your hand to confirm that is the case? Okay, fantastic. I'm going to interpret that as, yes, you guys do have access. Fantastic. Thank you, Nelson, for confirming that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this, uh, this month's webinar for me. Um, most of you know who I am. If you haven't, my name's Chris Jackson. My, my bio details are on Ascendo Reliability if you need to check me out any further. But this hour, we are going to be talking about supportability and for me as and for makers. Now, supportability has a very, I wanna say controversial definition. The reason I say it's controversial is that I don't think a lot of people truly understand what supportability is all about. We'll, we'll talk about that by going through an example. Now, what uh, I'm, going to start, I'm going to talk about an armored vehicle. And yes, this is a real world example, which uh, looks a little bit like this. And this armored vehicle went through a midlife upgrade. And one of the things that went through in this midlife upgrade was its belly plate, the plate that is on the beneath, on the underside of the armor, which is able to be removed to allow easy access to the, to the engine from beneath. It was welded shut in order to protect against chemical agents and IEDs improvised explosive devices. Now, the problem with this is that when they did this midlife upgrade, they didn't think about how to change the oil. And it turned out the only way you could change the oil was by removing the entire power pack, all because they didn't think to include an oil pump. And because militaries are ponder some uh, bureaucratic organizations, once this midlife upgrade was done, and all the money was spent and everyone signed off and everything. And then the first people said, hey, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea if we could uh, change the oil without having to take the engine out. Um, there was nothing, no, there's no bureaucratic capacity. There's no money. There was nothing left to, uh, to enable that sort of simple design change to, to be incorporated. So slightly rhetorical question, but how would you rate this vehicle's supportability. Now, the answer should be relatively low because at least from this, focused exclusively on this example or this scenario I just talked about, because the design of the, of the uh, vehicle, albeit a change design as part of the midlife upgrade, uh, it was incorporated or designed in a way that made it difficult to support and we'll talk about what support means later on the reason why i say supportability is con has a controversial definition is some people see supportability as something that exclusively deals with how you build your support system around the product system or service problem with that perspective is that supportability is actually a characteristic of the thing you are trying to support so there's there is designing a support system and they're designing something that's supportable. And that's very, very important to understand the difference between. 
If we look at, for example, the effect we have, uh, the, the ramifications that, that supportability has on the life cycle of most uh, product systems or services, services, they often look something like this. I understand that depending on which walk of life you come from, what sort of industry you're working in, you'll have different definitions to the life cycle than the ones in the horizontal axis of this chart here, which is technology, technology maturation, engineering and manufacturing development, production, production and deployment. I've just noticed a misspelling with production, my apologies, and operations and support. What this chart illustrates is that as you start to firm up the design of your product system or service, once you go through manufacturing, you rapidly, rapidly lose the ability to, uh, uh, to, to, impl to, uh, to affect life cycle cost. We know this, is, this uh, line here is based on a study. We know that for most, for example, military equipment, 60 to 80% of life cycle costs will be spent during what they call sustainment, once it's once that military vehicle has been designed, produced, and is now is now in the fields being used by soldiers, sailors, and airmen. But unfortunately, in some cases, our ability to influence life cycle costs decreases exponentially from the very, very start of this process. So by the end of our engineering and manufacturing development um, uh, phase essentially the bit where we start to transition from wonderful design to manufacturing, we have gone through 90% of our ability to influence life cycle costing. So even though we're gonna start uh, really accruing lots of life cycle costs in the next one or two phases, we, if we haven't thought about how to design something, that's, design something that is supportable, by the end of that design process, it's fundamentally too late. And we often think about supportability as an idea once we have, for example, start to finish the manufacturing process and we start doing things like working out how to maintain our thing. So we have to make sure supportability is designed into our system upfront. If we don't, there's nothing we can really do to recoup, uh, to realize the supportability potential of the thing we're developing. Of course, there's always options to save money and we should never forget about trying to improve the supportability of something regardless of how neglected supportability has been. But if you're serious about making supportability a thing, then it needs to happen early. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the title of this webinar is Supportability and Famiers and Famikas. Now, I'm not going to go into Famiers or Famikas in great detail, and I'm going to use Famika here for failure mode and effect criticality analysis interchangeably with Famia failure mode and effect analysis. From all, for all intents and purposes, they are the same activities. If you haven't learned about Famiers or Famikas, we're not going to go into them in too great a detail on this webinar. There's plenty of other resources and Ascendo reliability to look at to help you uh, uh, work out what they're all about. But in short, a Famia or a Famika is a process where we sit down as a small team and essentially in a structured way, led by an amazing facilitator, work out the likely ways our things are going, our system's going to fail. And we do that in a way which is not overwhelming and do it in a way where it's very productive. And the intent is to prioritize the subsystems and components that will then be the subject of more specific design for makers, which is a, a more uh, focused, more rigorous 
um, for me or for Mika Reffert based on one element of our system. Just uh, before I go on, show of hands, has anybody not heard of a familiar or for Mika prior to this webinar? So I can just gauge, gauge uh, the audience here. See, Nelson's still got his hand up from previously. Ali, so you haven't heard of Ali or Ali, you haven't heard of it before. Goran hasn't heard of a familiar or for Mika before but the overwhelming majority have. Okay, all right, so that's good to know. Most of us have heard of a Familiar or Famica and uh, know how they influence, uh, influence the design process. Uh, so Ali, in your comment, Famica is new to me. Just as a question, Ali, is a Famica new to you, but Famia not? Have you heard of a Famia? Okay, for me, as you know well. All right, so Ali, rest assured, if you know for me as well, you know for Meek as well as well. Uh, some people out there might suggest that uh, for Meek is a more quantitative. That's one perspective, but uh, if anyone cares to review the standards, a criticality analysis can be what they call subjective or qualitative as well. So in, for all intents and purposes, for Meek is, uh, even if you think they have uh, executed in different ways, are. Uh, philosophically the same as Famia. So everyone, as far as I can tell, not understands what a Famia and or a Famica is. Criticality analysis, according to standard, standards, is the process we go through uh, of, of prioritizing our failure modes that we identify. Uh, John asks, is this a risk-based approach? Technically speaking, any Famia or Famica is a risk management framework in its own right. So uh, a Famia can use a quantitative way of prioritize of sorry uh, assessing the risk of each potential failure mode or item or component, um, and so eat, every one of these activities is fundamentally dealing with risks. In fact, one of the more popular ways of prioritizing failure modes is through the risk prioritization number, which is simply a product of the occurrence, how frequently things are going to occur. Um, multiplied with the severity of the outcomes associated with those uh, hazards or potential failure modes. And in some cases, you multiply that again by the detectability, which measures your, abil your ability to identify the root causes of these potential failures anywhere in the production and sometimes maintenance process. So, rest, uh, so it looks like we know what for me is and for me because all about for philosophically. They are there first and foremost to influence the design in a positive way. And most people think Famias and Famikas are all about making your system more reliable. And they certainly are there for that purpose. There's lots of other things we can use Famias and Famikas for. We're going to talk about how they relate with supportability in this webinar. So when it comes to our life cycle, we are going to ideally conduct a system Famika at the very start of what we call the reliability designs cycle. And this is something, a concept I use a lot in my webinars. Again, I'm not gonna go through it in too great a detail in this webinar, but suffice to say the reliability design cycle is all about going through in a cyclic way, design iteration after design iteration to incorporate or bake reliability into your system. So your system for Mia or system for Mika should be done early. Um, and it will prioritize which components, not all components, which components are going to be subjected to design for makers, for me is, 
And those uh, vital few components who are subjected to, that, to those designs for me as well for makers will then have a wonderful list of potential corrective actions that will influence the design in a positive way. One of the outcomes of design for me or for makers are things like manufacturing tolerances and specifications. And those can be fed directly into what we call a process for me or for maker. And those process for me or for makers are all about trying to improve the manufacturing process. So these different types of for me or for makers are all about prioritizing effort, the system level, improving the design at the design level, and then finally, improving manufacturing at the uh, process for maker level. So that's what these things are all about. Uh, these activities are all about and when done well, they're really, really useful. Now, when it comes to supportability, supportability requirements by definition have to occur before we conduct our system for maker. So what does that mean? What's a system supportability, supportability requirement? That's where we're going to talk about things like modular replacement versus repair on site. A modular replacement or modular maintenance is where an entire subsystems can be quickly pulled out of a, of a system, replaced with another one, and that entire subsystem is then sent back uh, to some other maintenance facility to, to then be repaired. That means you need to design your system in a way that allows those, that quick, quick interchange of those modul modular subsystems, modular subsystems, I should say. That's one example of the requirement that you might want to impose on the design of your system. Once we have the requirements, then we need to have things like supportability specifications, which then drive supportability functions. So a supportability function could be something like the ability to, uh, to measure and then communicate the residual useful life of a particular component. That's really useful because that helps us work out if and when we should replace something. Perhaps we just simply want our system to keep track of how much damage is being accumulated, how many, how many part, uh, particulate uh, contaminants are in the lubrication of the uh, diesel engine, for example. Uh, so these functions just don't spring out, of, spring out of nothing, spring out of thin air. They need to be based within support, uh, supportability specifications, which themselves are derived to support the supportability requirements, which are identified at the concept level. So supportability has to happen at these stages of the design where we're going to do our system and design for makers. It's too late to do, do them any other time. <clears throat> Unfortunately, some organizations try and schedule supportability to happen right here. And that is bad news and why? Why is that? That is because if we go back to our little chart we looked at previously, that, that part of the product's life cycle is right about there when we have less than 10% ability to affect our life cycle costs. And life cycle costs are one useful metric uh, to at least gauge the supportability, the supportability of a product system or service. So our supportability, supportability requirements need to happen right at the very start. Now, you can't easily make your, your item supportable after it has been designed. So let's look at our uh, military vehicle um, and we're going to focus on a specific part. We're going to get you guys involved. On the top of our military vehicle, we have the turret. 
the, the turret, in this case, we have a main weapon. And of course, that main weapon is one of the key features of this vehicle. Now, most modern military vehicles with turrets, we have what's called a turret positioning system. The turret positioning system is, uh, allows a gunner or, or a crew member to control how the uh, turret rotates and how the main weapon elevates. You can see we have a big thing in the middle called a turret ring. We have two rotary gear drives on the outside, which essentially turn the turret. The thing in the middle is a linear, uh, linear drive, which uh, depresses or elevates the main weapon. So essentially the, the gunner is able to uh, focus the, the main weapon onto a point of aim, regardless of how fast or how, how fast the vehicle is going or how bumpy the ground is. That little box with those little circular arrows are gyroscopes because we have a computer system which allows us to uh, allows the system to automatically uh, adjust for bumps in terrain to make sure the main weapon stays uh, steady on the point of aim. So, a question for you guys: What would you be looking at as a high-level supportability requirement for the turret positioning system? Think about how you would want as a tank battalion commander or the mate, senior maintenance officer in the supporting workshop, how would you like the designers of this turret positioning system to design this to make it easier to support in the field? Any ideas? Anyone? How could this, how could the maintenance or the failure or the support of this tire uh, positioning system? So Michael suggested ease of maintenance. Doug suggested easy access to components if they need changed out, change out. John, John suggested reduced maintenance requirements, which is all fantastic, fantastic ideas. Easy access for gear lubrication. Wonderful, you don't want to have to remove the entire turret to lubricate the turret ring if that's something you need to do. Ability to test components, fantastic. Electrical components let you know if something's wrong. Lovely, so we're talking about uh, some sort of built-in test equipment or diagnostics, monitor, something to monitor vibration and movements and all those wonderful things that we, uh, that you as a, as a mate, uh, maintain, maintaining professional would want to be a privy to, to be able to do the right thing and being fit for the environment. I'd suggest that's a, an overarching requirement, but some really good ideas here. So let's, let's look at uh, some things that you guys might be interested. Do we want this, do we want this thing to com continually communicate the residual useful life of key, key components? And if so, do we want that done wirelessly, automatically? How do we get firmware updates installed onto the computer? What sort of maintenance gets conducted by untrained operators? Do you want it to track its accuracy over its service life? Do you want that modular maintenance philosophy? So without saying anyone's right or wrong, these are fundamental questions that we need to have answers for when we start designing a tire positioning system. If you want it to automatically track its accuracy over its service life, for example, then you need to have some sort of element within the tire positioning system to do that. 
Another big one that people often forget is uh, the qualifications needed by our maintainers. So if we can make this simple enough to be maintained by operators, that's a wonderful uh, tick in the box when it comes to supportability. So we have to think about supportability at the very start because supportability requirements drive supportability functions, which drive supportability specifications, which in turn uh, drive supportability metrics. So a supportability function is a behavior action or task that enables supportability. And these functions are typically things like the ability to predict failure, the ability to warn about failure, which is different to predicting failures, uh, the ability to predict failure essentially uh, allows you to say 10 year or 10 kilometers from now, so this is going to fail, where a warning about failure won't give you that level of, um, uh, won't give you a time per se, but then when the red light goes off, you know something's about to happen. Another thing that people often forget about is the ability to communicate all this wonderful information. There's a lot of military vehicles which have all sorts of wonderful diagnostics which stay on the vehicle because no one knows how to get them off real, real time. Or even if they do, it doesn't feed into their computerized maintenance management system. Then there's the ability to diagnose failure, the ability to be able to easily rectify failure where we start talking about maintainability, the ability to prevent failure, the ability to mitigate faults, to allow you to, for example, drive that military vehicle at a reduced speed so the engine doesn't seize entirely, to allow a less severe maintenance action to be conducted out on within a maintenance facility versus catastrophic failure in the engagement area of an ambush, which is a, a bad outcome for a military vehicle. So when it comes to supportability, there is no really clear definition out there. Many people think it's a very military thing and that's not wrong, but in practice, commercial organizations that I deal with who think our oh, supportability is for tanks and aircraft and things like that, are actually dealing with supportability themselves on a daily basis. So there's lots of different elements to supportability, which include some of the many things you're seeing on the screen right now. It also includes reliability. Something that is very supportable is something which can, uh, for example, very rarely break down or very rarely require maintenance. That is a wonderful way to drive down supportability of your product system or service by having it not fail very often. But of course, failure is always an option. So we do need to have all this system, system, uh, system to support our, our, uh, our product system or service, which is where the term supportability comes from. But it includes facilities and infra infrastructure, support equipment. Do we need specialist tools, computer resources, usage and maintenance data, package handling, storage and transportation, especially if we have sensitive components, supply support, manpower and personnel? Do we need to have 10 PhD qualified rocket scientists to change the oil in our thing or can it be done relatively easy, easily uh, on site. And of course, and there's training and training support that goes behind all these things. These are all elements of supportability and they are a design characteristic. So if we zoom in onto some of the, uh, some of the, the key ones when it comes to supportability metrics and supportability functions, we have these very common uh, metrics 
that we often see quoted in textbooks and contracts that uh, uh, at least at least an attempt to characterize supportability, things like mean maintenance time, lead, lead time, operational availability, uh, number of trained personnel, uh, built-in testing, that's what BIT stands for, built-in testing coverage, built-in testing accuracy. Coverage refers to the, essentially the extent to which that built-in test functionality uh, covers or examines the elements of your system. And of course, if you want built-in testing, you need to have sensors. You need to have sensors, they need to be part of your design. And these things help enable things like condition-based maintenance. It's not easy to make condition-based maintenance happen if you haven't thought about having those sensors placed on your product system or service during design. Of course, if you're in the asset management space, it can be a lot easier to, uh, to whack on a sensor to the side of a, uh, of a particular machine. However, it's becoming increasingly prevalent uh, with the smart technology that's being used these days uh, for uh, plant equipment to come with their own suite of diagnostics. And the reason why that's important is comes down to what the subject of this webinar is all about and how supportability links with FAMIAs and FAMIKAs. So, with that in mind, what supportability functions can you guys think of that relate to our turret positioning system? And it can be measured in terms of a metric. So if you were, we, we talked about supportability, lots of different requirements. We looked at some metrics. What would you be looking at in terms of very spe specific, uh, or very, uh, let's just say unambiguous specification um, when it comes to our turret positioning system. So Michael asked a question, do any materials needed for maintenance have a short, short shelf life? So I'm guessing, Michael, if I could reword your question uh, into a, a function, be something like the ability to uh, have spare parts sit on a shelf for a certain length of time without deterioration, which is a big deal for military customers. Anybody else think of any ideas for functions that can be perhaps measured in terms of a metric? Mean corrective maintenance time is an example. The mean corrective maintenance time needs to be less than a certain number of time, a certain uh, number of hours. Predictive supportability functions such as what, Philip? Which parts require configuration management? Could argue that all parts do. Calibration. So we get, we're getting a bunch of concepts, but if you had to put these into specifications, if you are writing a specification in a document, what would, uh, how would you write one of these ideas down to turn it into a supportability uh, function or specification that supports your requirement? Minimum reliability, fantastic. So you'd have uh, reliability metric X, Y, Z must be equal to or greater than one, two, three. How about how long it takes to conduct maintenance? An upper limit on how long it takes to repair the system. Time to repair or remove, love it. What about uh, servicing intervals? Do we want it to be serviced every five minutes or do you want it to be serviced every two years? 
oil change with iron is at 70 parts per million. So that is, you could argue that's not a specification, that's a design characteristic per se. Um, but you would, uh, to turn it into a more support, uh, supportability centric uh, specification, you want to say things like preventive maintenance or oil changes are to be no less than insert interval here. Um, oil change occurring when iron is at 70 parts per million of itself is a trigger for maintenance. But what does that mean in terms of the customer or the user? Does that mean they have to, does that mean they have to change the oil every two days or every two years? Technician MTTR for changing gear set is 15 hours. No worries, we're coming up with some good ideas for the supportability functions. Lead times to get parts is, uh, that's true. Um, so if lead times to get parts is, is an important consideration, it's not a, that's not a design uh, characteristic of the design itself, but you do need to incorporate that into your design. If you have lead time issues, then you wanna make sure that where possible, you have lots of warnings slash those things don't fail very often. Redundancy, it's not bad at all because if we have redundancy in some in certain uh, scenarios, we can often be conducting maintenance on the redundant component that has failed while the rest of the system is able to work. Not so applicable to our tariff positioning system, but redundancy does help not only reliability, but supportability as well. The indentured level of replaceable units must be specified. I'd argue that's just a, a given, that's a, that's a truism. Um, of course, you want your design team to tell you what parts are going to be the ones that need to be replaced. But anyway, we've got some good ideas, really good ideas about what we can be looking at when it comes to uh, designing supportability into our system. Now, why are we talking about supportability when we talk about Vermeers and Vermeers? So we've talked about supportability as a concept. Hopefully you're getting the gist that you have to put supportability or bake supportability into design. So why are we talking about it when we talk about Vermeers and Vermeers? Well, first and foremost, Vermeers and Vermeers, system Vermeers, design Vermeers, they are all about improving the design. So if supportability is a, is a key design characteristic and Vermeers and Vermeers are key design tools, then it stands to reason that Vermeers and Vermeers can be leveraged to make supportability happen. And that means Vermeers and Vermeers are fantastic tools for designing for supportability. Now I'm going to go over a really, uh, I'm going to go over a, um, an example I've covered in previous webinars where we look at how to support a really big mining truck, one of these big bad boys. And I'm not gonna go into the uh, details into too great a detail. Sorry, I use the term details a lot in that sentence, but this is a really big truck with a 400 ton, ton, ton payload, which is often driven nonstop and it costs a lot of money. And one of the reasons it costs a lot of money is because it has a big engine. And that engine also costs a lot of money. It's an absolutely monstrous engine. And of course, we want to look after our engine. This is a really, really big engine. And this engine it consists of 20 cylinders. It costs the best part of a million dollars. And in the previous webinars, we looked at uh, how many parts we need to support something, we went through this scenario where we answered the question, how many spare engines do I need for a three year period for one truck? 
And to answer that question, what we should be first asking is how does it break? The reason why I want to do that is because we need to follow this causal tree of questioning. What is my system not doing? Why did this happen? What broke? How did it break? What started it? What did we do wrong? What do we need to do? And the reason why we want to do this is because question number two, how did it break? The answer is a failure mechanism. The failure mechanism is the physical, chemical, electrical, thermal, or other process which results in failure. So I fully appreciate some of you might be going, this sounds like a tangent. I thought we'd be here to talk about supportability. But if you don't know how your thing breaks, you don't know how to support it. And the reason is because failure is a random process. So for those groupies who keep turning up to my webinars, this will be something you are familiar with, the random hand of failure. This hand represents all the teeny tiny variations and the thousands of factors that influence how long it's going to take for, in this case, our engine to fail. And that means that uh, time to failure is a random variable. Uh, even seemingly identical engines will fail at different times. And if we were to do enough testing or get enough data, we would realize that these times have some way, we can characterize them using, for example, a probability density function curve. And all this curve means is that these times to failures are clustering, clustering around a central time. Now, this isn't reliability. Now, we're going to go on a bit of statistics here, a bit of uh, definitions, but you can see that because these things are failing around some sort of central time, we see a, a roughly bell shape for our PDF curve. Essentially, the reliability curve now looks like this. It starts pretty high and it goes down pretty quickly at or around the time that most things start failing. So this is what reliability looks like. The reason why this is important is because based on the nature of how our things fail, we can learn a lot about how to deal with them. So if we replace the reliability curve with the hazard rate curve, the rate at which a thing that is still working fails, this is what we get. We have this red line here representing the increasing likelihood of surviving systems failing. And the reason why we are having this increasing hazard rate is because whatever our product or system is, it is accumulating damage through failure mechanisms like fatigue, diffusion, wear, corrosion, creep, oxidation, lubricate, lubricant contamination, so on and so forth. Just so happens that our engine's uh, main failure mechanisms are all wear out failure mechanism, mechanisms, which makes sense. We know this about engines, they accumulate damage and we often need to step in and conduct preventive maintenance to uh, arrest the amount of damage that is being accumulated because every day that goes past, the uh, probability of failure increases. This is what, happened, what it looks like for a wear out failure mechanism. And the reason we need to know that is because based on this knowledge, we can do things like use condition-based maintenance or impose a warranty period or inform warranty reliability or conduct preventive maintenance or otherwise work out the service life of our thing based on the vital few failure mechanisms that drive system reliability performance. Now, this is one way in which things can fail. And of course, there are lots of other ways as well. Uh, Muhammad asked if we can please touch something about general issues when talking about chillers. I'll do my best, uh, but I do have... Uh, central example, we can talk about chillers at the end and see if there's anything we can, anything we can uh, 
we can learn about um, from that scenario because there are a couple of good ones and some of those include what we call wear in failures which uh, are failures which occur with a decreasing hazard rate you can see here with this new uh, arrangement of um, uh, this new data set we can see that the failures are now clustering around the uh, left hand side of our axis which means we have tons of early failures this is classic wear in where for whatever reason we have uh, damage uh, we have uh, a subpopulation damaged or we have a number of defects in a few of our systems which means that when those systems fail the rest of the systems uh, those which have uh, uh, don't have the defects, so they tend to have higher apparent reliability. So there's lots of reasons for wear in. And the thing about wear in is that we're not going to be doing preventive maintenance or condition-based maintenance or anything else because all those approaches to maintenance deal with the accumulation of damage. If we experience wear in, we need to look at manufacturing quality or conduct burn-in testing or or conduct training to help train our operators and installers to not do things in a way that damages our equipment. So we need to really know the nature of failure in order to work out what we can do to mitigate it. And of course, here is another scenario where it seems like although failures are occurring at a decreasing rate, it's not nearly as significant as the scenario we just looked at. And this is because this chart here represents are failures that occur with a constant hazard rate. And these are failures that occur due to catastrophic external environmental stresses. Things like voltage spikes on, on electric, electronic components are a classic case where those randomly occurring voltage spikes come through and destroy your capacitor no, no matter how old or young it is. Weather events and human errors, uh, human accidents, sorry, human errors are also classic cases of uh, failure modes that occur with a constant hazard rate. The reason why we want to know if these failures are happening is because these failures have their own set of causes and their own set of things you can do about it. Now, the problem with the constant hazard rate, as Fred will often talk about in his webinars and on Ascendo, is that the constant hazard rate unfortunately dominates textbooks left, right and center. So what does that mean? Well, if you're going to assume that our engine has a constant hazard rate, then the textbook approach will tell you that this is the likelihood of certain number of certain number of failures occurring in our three-year window. Remember, we're interested in trying to work out how many spare engines we need in our three-year window. According to this textbook approach to working out how many spare engines we need, we need to have five engines in total to have a 99.55% chance of having enough spares on site to uh, get us through a three-year window, assuming our engines have a constant hazard rate, which we know they don't. And when we do the analysis where we actually look at how our engines are failing due to wear out, we see a remarkably different conclusion. We can see here that the, uh, the, uh, the gray bars represent the, uh, the number of spares we need, assuming a, a constant hazard rate, where these red bars represent how many, sorry, the probability of specific number of engine failures if we incorporate the fact that it wears out. And this is wonderful news for us because we only now need three engines to be all but certain of having enough engines on the site 
to last the three-year window. So why am I talking about this? Because this is not a function of supportability. The engine is what it is. We need to, uh, we need, if we are able to understand how our, our engines fail, we are able to make much smarter and much better decisions about how many spare parts we need. So for us to be able to work out that we only need three engines uh, in, in, order to, uh, in order to get through our three-year period, we first need to start with the failure mechanism. And where does that failure mechanism first get identified? In a FAMIA or FAMIKA. So your FAMIA or FAMIKA will tell you how your thing is going to fail. And if you can't work out how your thing is going to fail, you invariably go to a dumb textbook approach to everything which means that in this case, we all have five engines on site, noting that each engine costs about 700 to 800,000 US dollars. We will never go through the last two of those engines, which means they will sit on the shelf and perish over time. And all that was for naught because we didn't take the time to understand how our engines fail. And that's where a FAMIA or FAMIKA can save the day. So let's look at an, exa look at an example, which we will eventually talk about as a team. We're gonna look at specifically fatigue. Now fatigue is a, an infuriating failure mechanism because it is one of the few failure mechanisms where um, particularly metal components can be subject to stresses that are well below their strength, but still cause failure. How do we do that? Well, we just use, we uh, cycle those stresses over a number of cycles and often metallic struts and components and beams and bridges will eventually fail. And we, but we do know how fatigue operates. And we, op we represent the characteristics of fatigue using what's called an SN chart. S stands for stress, N stands for number of cycles. And you can see on this chart here, the number of cycles is represented using a logarithmic scale on the horizontal axis. And, and stress in this case is represented with a linear scale. And we know that, for example, for 1045 steel, that the point at which we expect the majority of our, or, or the typical number of cycles to failure for given stresses is given by this line here. Now, a particular characteristic of steel is that it has this thing called the endurance limit. And that means that stresses below this line tend to never result in fatigue cracking. Now, fatigue cracking involves cracks which grow every time a new cycle of stress is applied. So for stresses above around about 500 megapascals, we will see that uh, if those stresses are applied over and over and over again, eventually our steel is going to fail due to fatigue. But of course, this is a single line so I'm going to add this little, uh, uh, this little uh, region, which represents our confidence interval. There's natural variations in the, in the microscopic defects and scratches in our 1045 steel, all of which will contribute to some variation to how long it's going to take for our thing to fail due to fatigue in terms of the number of cycles. So if we, for example, zoom in on 400 megapascals, we look at, uh, we look at, uh, uh, 1045 steel application, we know that, for example, this 1045 steel in its design use will be subjected to cyclic stresses of 400 megapascals over and over and over and over again. 
we can use this chart to work out that the median fatigue limit in this case is around about 87,000 cycles. That means we expect uh, a typical time to failure for uh, 1045 steel when exposed to 400 megapascals of stress is about 87,000 cycles or cyclic stresses, stresses being applied. But of course, we know there is some uncertainty involved. So a better representation of time to failure is going to be uh, represented with this little mini bell curve. So we can see that this tells us quite accurately that even though we're applying 400 megapascals of stress and even though our best guess is 87,000 cycles until failure, in practice, there's some, uh, some components will start failing a little bit earlier, some components will start failing a little bit later, but overall we can characterize the uncertainty using a little distribution like this. Now let's go back to our tarot positioning system. And let's just say that we know that the rotary drive system shaft is made out of, uh, in this case, I should, shouldn't be 1050 steel, it should be 1045 steel. Now 1045 steel um, is, this 1045 steel is, is, is uh, subjected to 400 megapascals of stress per cycle. So question for you guys, a little bit of revision. Why is fatigue a wear at failure mechanism for our rotary gear drive shaft? Why do you think failure mechanism is, uh, sorry, fatigue is all about, is a, an example, I should say, of wear out? What fundamental characteristic of fatigue makes it a wear out failure mechanism? Any ideas? Accumulation of cycles, close. So it's all about uh, as, as the number of cycles increase, the likelihood of failure increases. Not necessarily. Uh, you're talking about the rate of which the hazard rate, hazard rate increases. Accumulation of stress. Stress isn't the correct term because it's always 400 megapascals. Uh, there's another word we need to use in this sentence, it's not accumulation of cycles, it's not accumulation of stress. What makes a failure mechanism a wear out failure mechanism? Think about age. It's something that wears out, more likely to fail if it's older. Two metal touches, not entirely sure what that refers to. All right, I'll give you guys a fantastic, Fred. Accumulation of damage. Every time you are looking at a failure mechanism, if it accumulates damage, then it is by definition a wear out failure mechanism. Damage can be measured in terms of the length of that fatigue crack, can be measured in terms of the uh, particulate uh, contaminants in a lubrication. Whatever damage means for your system, if your system accumulates damage and therefore an older system is more likely to fail than a younger system, then we have a wear out failure mechanism. So question for you guys, because fatigue is all about cracks growing over time, what predictive maintenance, uh, predict, predictive or condition-based maintenance, maintenance action might work for this rotary drive shaft? Is there anything we can do to measure the amount of 
damage. Anything we can do. Oil analysis and UT of the gears, vibration analysis or NDT, ultrasound, ultrasonic sound. Fantastic, a few really good ideas. Can any of those be built into our rotary gear drive? Grease analysis, probably not going to give us too much about fatigue cracking, but yes, grease analysis can uh, help us work out um, the, uh, the rate of at which particulates are falling off our gears into our into our lubrication. I can see now my question wasn't very specific. Could it be as simple as the computer counting how often the drive shafts cycle? I love that question. I'm going to come back to that one, Doug, if that's all right. Magnetic plugs and a task to look for uh, uh, fine parts particles or files. No worries. So there's, there's a few ways we can start thinking about working out how to uh, backlash. That's a good one. If the shaft seats starts, if the shaft starts to heat up, thermal analysis of temperature reading. So there's lots of things that we are thinking about in a ways that can measure the accumulation of damage. Now, all of those things need to be designed as a rule into our system, especially when space is a premium and space is a premium on vehicles like the armored vehicle we're just looking at. So Doug, what preventive maintenance action, uh, um, what preventive maintenance action might work for the rotary drive shaft and on what interval? So I'm going to come back to your question, Doug, where you posed, could it be as simple as the computer counting how often the draft shaft, draft, drive shafts cycle? This is a question you would ask as it relates to preventive maintenance because preventive maintenance is all about intervals. So after a certain number of cycles, we are going to do something to our uh, rotary gear drive. So what could we do after a certain number of fixed intervals to address specifically um, fatigue? What can we do? Right. How many cycles would we be, uh, how many cycles would that be? What, sorry, how many cycles would be in the interval for the replacement that you have just uh, posed, Doug? How many cycles would that be? Okay. I can see John's talking about condition-based maintenance here which is a fair point. But if you are for some reason restricted to preventive maintenance, which is often the case in certain vehicles and certain systems, how would you work at how many intervals or sorry, how many cycles you need to go through before? Okay, you don't wanna to go towards the lower end of that mini bell curve on the SN chart. I love it, Doug, but how do we find that SN curve? We find it by understanding first the failure mechanism. John raises a good point, previous failure data, which is a, if you have previous fail data, failure data, use it. If you don't, then 
again, that's where your system for Mia and for Mika can be very useful because part of the root cause analysis in your FAMIA and FAMIKA is all about identifying that failure mechanism. And if you embed supportability into your FAMIA and FAMIKA, then corrective actions can involve having those wonderfully um, informed design team leads who are part of your FAMIA or FAMIKA process while they're held captive in that room, work out how long it's going to take for that, those foothills of that mini bell curve to uh, come into play. Goran suggests that in his experience, fixed intervals are only used if you don't have any way to measure real wear and tear. And that normally leads you to need, leads you to need to change to be early to be safe, which is a fair observation. I'll also give you my fair observation, Goran, is that I've only ever seen servicing intervals or fixed intervals imposed way too conservative, conservatively. We uh, look at, say, for example, there I say it, someone looks at the mean time of two failure and say, okay, we want to replace our thing either sometimes at the mean time to failure, which is not good, but sometimes you say, we'll replace it when it's halfway to our mean time to failure, which also means we're throwing out really good stuff because we haven't gone to the trouble of analyzing the actual failure characteristics of our thing as well. I've done preventive maintenance interval analysis after preventive maintenance interval analysis and it's always been the case that people are swapping things out too early when they used fixed intervals because there is this almost paranoid bias towards conservatism when the servicing intervals are first struck at the start of your production life, at your start of your operational cycles, the start of your design process, and they never get revised thereafter. Okay, I have a question for you guys. Uh, hang on, Matt raises a comment. Is it feasible to determine the reliability of your shaft rather than use steel as a raw material? Uh, so I don't see those two as mutually exclusive. So for example, if you're trying to understand the reliability of your drive shaft, then, which is based on steel, then you would need to, one approach would be to analyze the steel itself. Alternately, you can do things like accelerated life testing of your rotary gear drive system or other, let's just say, data gathering techniques to work out what the time to failure characteristic is going to look like. There's also no problem. In fact, it's very useful to uh, use the physics of failure in order to get there. So what approach should we use? if we're going, we've looked at a bunch of different approaches to mitigating uh, our, our fatigue failure mechanism here, based on all the different things we've looked at, which one would you guys run with? There's no right or wrong answer in this webinar. We've looked at servicing intervals. We've looked at condition-based maintenance. So we do something at a fixed interval. Other approaches involve a more nuanced monitoring of what's going on. Anyone, would anyone prefer, prefer some of the more predictive approaches versus a PM? So if you like PM, type PM into the uh, preventive maintenance or fixed interval servicing, type PM into the, into the chat. 
if you're a fan of the more predictive stuff, uh, type CBM into the chat. Obviously, we should, as a rule, tend to be biased towards CBM, but take into consideration what you think the feasibility of CBM is, is as well. Bruce is the only one brave enough to, to throw his opinion around. He goes with CBM. Before we, while you guys are pondering what you're, uh, yep, happy with that, Bruce. While you guys are pondering that, if we go to preventive maintenance, um, how, and it, we obviously assume that the stress is 400 megapascals, how can we monitor the stress that our drive shaft is being exposed to over time? Doug's talking about the miner's rule. There you go. Miner's rule is all about working out uh, the accumulation of damage based on different stresses. So how that would require us to be monitoring the number of stresses. Ah, oh, current draw from the motor. That's useful. That can help us work out the stress. Um, you could combine that with the number of rotations and work out how much power is being subsumed to turning our, uh, our poor old turret ring. One drawback from that, John, is that if there is any short circuiting, which does happen in the state of winding of this DC brushless motor, you will then draw more current without, um, without having any more, any more output current. But I love where you're going with this. Now we're starting to think Slip clutch, okay, nice. That will minimize the amount of stress. David's voted for CBM as well. One thing we can do, for example, is have little teeny tiny stress sensors in the housing of our, um, of our rotary gear drive system, which then allows us to work at the bending moments at any point in time. Uh, Mahendra suggests that since the risk of failure here is very high and cost is not as much, preventive maintenance approach might be the safer approach. Could be, could be. But I'll put it to you guys, without trying to tell you what the right answer is, if we go back to the nature of failure for our, uh, for our rotary gear drive, specific, uh, focusing on failure mechanisms, fatigue I should say, it's all about things that accumulate damage. We cannot do preventive maintenance or condition-based maintenance on anything else besides things that wear out. So we can't do this without knowing the failure mechanism. We can't know the failure mechanism without having those smart design people in the room. I wonder, does that happen when they do for me and for me? And if they do think that we need to have condition-based maintenance, then they can, at, while they're sitting there coming up with wonderful design ideas, say, hey, we need this stress sensor here. Hey, we need to design our computer uh, to, uh, to monitor current draw, that, that stuff, that is where supportability starts to happen and it cannot happen after it's been designed. But here I'm going to throw a curveball to you. I understand that we've talked about the accumulation of damage and that's what wear out failure mechanisms are all about. Let's go back to wear in. Wear in is, is, uh, occurs where we essentially see what appears to be increasing reliability over time, lots of early failures. But once we get through this initial period, or what we also call infant mortality, we tend to see the frequency of failures decrease. And that's because, for example, we have manufacturing defects in a small population of our tarp positioning system. So they fail early. 
leaving the ones which are defect free to continually plug along. So let's just say that our Fermica identifies that there's a chance that a fraction of our rotary gear drive shafts will have manufacturing defects. And here are plenty of uh, potential defects, some of which like impurities can drive fatigue. So if we have these defects and they start highly accelerated fatigue cracking, is this failure mechanism now wear out or is it now wear in? Question for you guys. Fatigue is a wear out failure mechanism based on everything we talked about so far, but what happens if it's triggered or by a small population of defects. Nelson says, we're in. Anybody else got any ideas? Philip also says, we're in. Mahendra, everyone says, we're in. Love it. Fantastic. Even though failure, uh, fatigue is a wear out failure mechanism, when it's caused by manufacturing defects, it manifests itself as wear in. So what pre preventive or predictive maintenance action could we recommend for fatigue cracking caused by manufacturing defects? What could we do to somehow, if our Femia or Femica identifies this is a thing, is there anything else we can do to somehow address these sorts of failures, fatigue caused by... Um, uh, by these manufacturing defects because we can't use it the same process as we used, talked about previously. We can't have an interval-based approach because it's based on an unknown propagation of fatigue cracks because they're caused by these uh, defects which aren't supposed to be there. What could we do to mitigate these particular issues? These particular failure, fatigue failures caused by manufacturing defects. Stress screening, I like it. Can you keep going on? Random quality control checks in the manufacturing process. Okay, happy with that. Metallurgical testing. Yeah, let's, let's run with, uh, what's the answer to your last one, your, your question, Nelson, where you asked, do we wait until they come to us and we don't know? What can you do in that scenario where you get these rotor gear drives, your FAMIA has identified, hey, there's a chance that there could be defects in the shafts, what can you do to mitigate those sorts of early fatigue uh, failures caused by those defects? What can we do? Highly accelerated stress testing. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with those. Those are typically used in, uh, in manufacturing, I would say. One thing we can do though, is burning testing, where essentially you put these on rigs and run them, uh, reduce load for an interval. That's cool. So we can identify any issues. So we have some sort of initial period where we treat our tarot positioning systems differently. I love it. Or we can do an inspection after a certain small interval. Uh, we often do that when we change tires. We put, we uh, talk, retalk the nuts, and then 50 to 100 kilometers later, we stop our vehicle. We should stop our vehicle and then make sure those nuts are 
as tight as they need to be. That's an example of, uh, of addressing an infant mortality failure. Add ongoing reliability testing step into the, uh, into the process. Happy with that. But we can also, uh, the question I'm asking though is what could that step be? So I've had some good ideas. We had HAS, HAST hardness testing, uh, reduced load for an interval. Um, we talked about burn-in testing to, to uh, filter out the bad ones. We talked about having some sort of um, have some sort of inspection or something similar to that after our reduced load for that interval John suggested. But I don't want to say what's right or wrong. All I want you to realize from this conversation is that these are wonderful ideas that you guys have come up with and you are not tarp positioning system experts as far as I'm aware. But this rudimentary conversation where I've introduced a brand new, um, uh, that, Roger, that John, uh, brand new system, which you have never seen before. Uh, and you've come up with some wonderful ideas about how we can lessen the load when it comes to supportability from condition-based maintenance through to preventive maintenance. Um, but those things need to happen at the design level because 90% of our lifecycle costs are locked in once we go from many go from manufacturing to operational use that's often where we start to think about supportability becoming a thing and if we're able to modify our familiars or familiars and yes they are modifiable where we actually do things like add fields that address uh supportability questions rcm like question what is the failure mechanism does this failure mode you just talked about does it have a wear out failure mechanism if yes can we do cbm if we can't do cbm what about preventive maintenance if we embed those into our familiar or familiar then we actually start designing those condition-based maintenance sensors and built-in tests built-in test equipment into the first design. And by the way, the people who are coming up with design recommendations, they too are constantly thinking about supportability. Why? Because you've embedded it, embedded that conversation into your familiar or familiar. So on that note, are there any questions about what we talked about, how supportability when done well can be a, a really crucial part of a familiar or familiar? I know today I didn't talk about how we go through the process of actually embedding supportability into our familiar or familiar. Uh, it's just outside the scope of today's conversation. But if we realize that we need to understand how our things are going to fail before we can work out how to maintain and maintain them, I should say, or how many spare parts we need for that mining truck. If we, if we understand we need to know the failure mechanism, how can we not start thinking about supportabilities Supportability, I should say, during our FAMIA and FAMIKAs. Any questions or comments? While you guys are thinking of any questions or comments, I'm going to take it back to this slide here which i think oh the previous one actually which tells us or essentially shows how important it is to think about supportability earlier rather rather than later and this these are lines aren't lines which are just made up these are the results of the study 
by the Defence Acquisition University last year. So it does have a military uh, military flavour to it in terms of the actual extent to which life cycle costs are locked in. And in some industries, life cycle costs aren't a common term, but hopefully you get the point. Uh, are there any resources that we can look into in setting supportability goals? That's a good question. So a lot of people ask, what are the, uh, the what should we be writing in terms of specifications and goals and things like that? Uh, Philip, very first thing you can do to really make that process a lot easier is go back to the requirements. Now, a requirement is, I like looking at requirements and specifications like this. A requirement is how the user or customer is going to tell you uh, how they'd like this system to interact with them. That, that the requirements are the words they would hypothetically use to describe what they want it to do. And they would say in this case, we, uh, for example, look, we don't, they, they might have a bias towards smart maintenance, let's just say, where they only swap things out when they need to. They want to do targeted maintenance or the customer or user can, might say, look, we really want to minimize downtime. So we want a modular maintenance philosophy so it doesn't take long uh, to, to uh, get that system back online. But that means we then need to transport this system, subsystem we just ripped out to a, uh, maintenance facility to repair, but perhaps that's what they want. So the question I would ask you is, what are the overarching overarching supportability requirements of your system? And if that's too much of a mouthful, simply think about how the customer or user would describe to you what they would like your product system or service to do when it comes to supportability. Um, when it comes to the resources out there, unfortunately, there's not a lot out there in terms of guiding you through the steps you ask uh, or um, working out what the, those answers are. There's more of a checklist approach. It's more of a list of consider this, consider this, consider this, consider this. And it's not, you, not really helpful. One of the reasons it's not really helpful is it does ultimately come down to what you require or what your customer or user requires your product system or service to do. Um, I often use a smart lock uh, as, as part of the examples in my course. And of course, supportability in that case involves, for example, the user or customer having to do essentially nothing at all. And that implies that the smart lock needs to be in constant communication with the OEM about its status, about any firmware issues that they can they can preemptively send firmware updates and address vulnerabilities as we go. Uh, Ali suggests, if possible, the example cases should perhaps also include electronics. And yes, I do use, for example, the smart lock in other courses as well, other, other flavors of this. So I, I did go with uh, tar positioning system in this one because that's the one I randomly chose today. But yes, uh, I do understand the importance of electronics and uh, unfortunately, I didn't choose one which was uh, heavily focused on electronics today. Supportability looks similar to maintainability. What's the key difference? That's a great question. One of the key differences is reliability. So for example, things can be really easy to maintain, but fail a lot. So that might be, even, even though uh, that system which fails a lot but it's easy to maintain, it might be less supportable than a very reliable system, which is an absolute pain to maintain. 
So in one case, you have one system which has a higher maintain or better maintainability, but is less supportable than another system which has lower maintainability because system two is more reliable. So supportability needs to take into consideration a lot more than just maintainability. And of course, uh, when it comes to maintainability as well, if you increase the maintainability, you do improve supportability. If you're able to have onboard diagnostics and built-in test equipment, which is a classic maintainability, maintainability design characteristic, of course, that helps your supportability too, because you don't need to have as many spares, you're not doing maintenance as often, et cetera, et cetera but supportability includes a lot more than maintainability. Another example of where supportability is bigger than maintainability is, I think we talked about it in one of the examples, the essentially logistic supply chain. You might be able to design a system which doesn't require, let's just say components or parts that need to be kept in carefully controlled uh, environmental chambers until they're used. If you can design a system which is able to use spare parts which, do, which don't have special environmental considerations or constraints, then support of the logistics footprint decreases. And if you can do that, then you have increased the supportability of your device or your system without necessarily touching on maintainability. Does that answer your question, Nelson? No worries, but of course, maintainability is a huge part of supportability. Any more questions? Excuse me. No worries, team. If that's the case, then I say that if that's the case, I'll assume that we're done asking questions. I assume that there's a chance that some people are busily typing. Thank you, Doug. Uh, busily typing some questions. We might wait a minute or two just to confirm that that's done. Matt, thank you for turning up. Um, same to you, Mahendra. Conrad. Thank you for being part of this. All right, I can see that everyone's thanking me, which means that I need to be um, being ushered out of this webinar off stage left. But hey, team, thank you again for turning up today uh, and uh, being part of this conversation. It's always good to chat with you guys. If you've got any suggestions for webinars moving forward, that said, I think at least I'll be probably taking a hiatus over Christmas. I think the last Tuesday of December is Christmas day. So I will be back in January ready to talk about something else, which is wonderfully uplifting in the world of reliability, availability, and maintainability. And yes, Mohammed, the uh, recording will be on ascendoreliability.com. Um, it will take Fred a day or two to edit it and upload it. And of course, you all have access to, to the workbook as well. If there's any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Any suggestions, any ideas, love to hear it. Beyond that, I think, Fred, we are good to go.